At this time, I'd like to introduce you to the fine writers we have on stage. Uh, Harvey Friedenberg has been writing about books since 2005, and in that time has written more than 700 reviews for publication. He is a member of the National Book Critics Circle World, uh, Critics Circle, uh, writes for print publications and websites that include bookreporter.com, Shelf Awareness, Harrisburg Magazine, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune, as well as various literary blogs. He has appeared as a panelist in programs on book reviewing and publishing at the Delaware Book Festival, as well as uh, the only book festival that matters, the Harrisburg Book Festival. Um, he has served on the board of the Dauphin County Library System for 17 years, including two years as its president, and for several years was a member of the selection committee for the One Book, One Community program. Uh, our man of the hour, Steve Luxenberg, is the author of Separate, the story of Pl Plessy versus Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation, um, as well as the critically acclaimed book, uh, Annie's Ghosts, A Journey into a Family Secret. During his 30 years as a Washington Post senior editor, he has overseen reporting that has earned numerous national honors, including two Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, his new book has won the J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award, and he lives in Baltimore. His new book, as we mentioned earlier, is called Separate. Um, it has earned numerous words of praise from some giants across the field of American history. Uh, acclaimed Civil War historian Eric Foner says that the book reminds us that our history is not simply a narrative of greater and greater freedom, Mark Bowden calls it a compulsively readable work of serious history, and Bob Woodward calls the book a brilliant milestone in understanding the history of race relations in America. I'm more than happy to hand the stage over to Harvey Friedenberg and Steve Luxenberg, so please join me in giving them a warm Harrisburg welcome. Yay. Thanks, Alex. Uh, thank you all for being here this evening, and Steve, welcome to Harrisburg. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate having you here. What uh, Alex did not mention in introducing me is that for 41 years I practiced law, so uh, I'm now a recovering lawyer. And uh, uh, this book brought back a lot of memories of uh, my day in uh, days in practice, although I did not practice in the 19th century. Um, <laughs> What, what I'd like to ask uh, Steve to, to do to start out this evening is uh, to read uh, a, a brief excerpt from the book to sort of set the stage and perhaps uh, for those of you who may not be as familiar with the case of uh, Plessy versus Ferguson to uh, introduce you to the case and certainly see if you want to make any comments before doing that, uh, you're welcome to. Well, I, I think I'll start by introducing to the case a little bit so that the context of the excerpt will make some sense. But thank you all for coming. This is a terrific space. Um, thanks to the balcony. I hope that you're listening up there. Hi there. Um, my wife teased me when I was writing this book because uh, I would frequently interject into conversations about 21st century politics. Well, in the 19th century. Uh, so tonight I'm going to say that and you're not allowed to tease me because that's, what, that's where the book takes place. And it's really important that I describe the 19th century a little bit to you. Uh, you know it's not the 21st century, but you don't know how different it really is. But the most important thing to remember is that the Supreme Court is not ideologically divided. It's not only not ideologically divided, they're all very much alike. These are nine justices in the, 18, in the 1890s. They're all white men. They're all men of property and some wealth and they all see the world very much the same way in a cosmic sense, even though they are also Democrats and Republicans. And the president, the, the various presidents who have named these white men to this, to this uh, high court, they, the, the presidents are not trying to cement their ideological point of view by appointing, let's say, the Brett Kavanaugh's and the uh, and the uh, Gorsuch's of that age. Instead, they're trying to curry favor largely with the senators so they can get legislation passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the senators have a much greater role in recommending the nominees. Um, also, they don't yet have a view of the 14th Amendment, that critical amendment that says equal protection under the law, that we have the expansive view that we have today. So that's something that they disagree about. And cases that are brought and argued under the 14th Amendment, the court has frequently rejected. They want a, a much narrower view of what that 14th Amendment says than we would, we would accept today. Um, in that context, you might ask, well, Steve, why did you do this book? You know, why do we care about Plessy versus Ferguson? And I would say two things. One is, is that the ver reverberations of that case, of the idea that separate could be equal, which 
the you know, court rejected 60 years later in Brown versus Board of Education and said separate is inherently unequal. Uh, those reverberations continue to this day. The idea that, that this, it wasn't just an idea, the fact of separation uh, created two starting lines, if you will, to use President Johnson's metaphor from 1965 that have not yet equalized. So when you look at statistics about white and black educational attainment, white and black uh, wealth, uh, the way in which police departments relate to their black, the black citizens as opposed to the white citizens, you see a huge gulf that starts way before Plessy is enshrined by the Supreme Court in Plessy and continues to this day. So in that context, in the prologue, which is what Harvey was asking me to read from, I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. As I, this is the same idea of setting you up for this book, I'm setting you up for the conversation that we're going to have. The Plessy case underscores a central fact about the Supreme Court. Its decisions cannot be viewed in isolation. They follow a string of earlier rulings and they precede a fresh set of issues that can sometimes be foreseen but never guaranteed. Questions about racial equality confronted the country's founders who embedded their divisions into the Constitution in 1789. We grapple with those same questions still in every new dispute including or involving voting rights and immigration, affirmative action and school funding, criminal justice and capital punishment. All Supreme Court stories have their own geography. Remarkable characters populate the landscape of this one. Turgeon of Ohio, Brown of New England, he's the justice who writes the decision, Turgeon is the lawyer who, brings, who argues the case. Harlan of Kentucky, the only dissenter in the seven to one ruling, Martinet of Louisiana, he's the head of the uh, committee that brings the, the, uh, the heads up the strategy that gets it to the Supreme Court. On separate paths to a shared destination connected by time, culture, happenstance, and the unresolved struggle between an exhausted North and a bitter South. Their actions and attitudes, their flaws and foibles, who they were, where they lived, what they said, why they said it, how their views evolved during a tumultuous half century of strife and conflict serve as powerful reminders that history is made, not ordained. Okay. Thanks, Steve. Um, so as you read in the, in the very last couple of sentences there, this uh, issue really developed over a period of 50 or more years. I mean, the first cases went back to the 1830s or 40s, correct? Uh, and a lot of people are under the impression, perhaps because this case arose out, out of New Orleans, Louisiana, that uh, the issue of separate public accommodations for blacks and whites was somehow a Southern issue. But as you point out in the book, that's not really the case. And in fact, uh, there was at least one case that has some connection to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So could you talk about a little bit about how this issue first developed, how it developed into the, in the North, and uh, what ties Harrisburg to the, the back, backdrop of Plessy versus Ferguson. I start the book with a prologue and just gets you involved in some of the characters, but the first chapter is about the first instance of racial separation on public transportation in not Alabama, not Mississippi, but Boston, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Not only were, at the dawn of the railroad age, and let me stop and say, think about the railroad as a piece of technology. It's the same as a cell phone. When it comes into existence in 1838, passenger railroads, it, it is a revolution in how people are gonna get around. And it raises the question in, the, uh, in Massachusetts where there are free blacks living as opposed to the South where people are enslaved, where do I sit? And there are eight railroad companies Three of them decide that they are going to have separate railroad cars. Now, why would they do this? The number of free blacks living in Massachusetts in 1840, according to the census, is fewer than 1%. This is not a problem that needs to be solved. There are not very many people riding the railroad, and they're not taking seats away from white people, as was the case uh, people in Montgomery, Alabama, complained in 1955 on the buses. Uh, so this is embedded, this racism is embedded deep into, the, into our culture. And I think that 
um, because we talk about the South and the shame of the South, which the South should be ashamed of itself, but we neglect to talk about the shame of the North, mm -hmm. that we're letting the North off the hook. Mm -hmm. Because uh, racial separation is a Northern concept, and think about why that might be. In the South, which lagged in railroad construction, who was building the railroads? Enslaved people. They weren't riding the railroads. Right. Uh, and so that's why I begin there. And the case that you're talking about, so there were a number of confrontations in Boston on those three railroads. One of them is a young man, 24 years old, recently escaped from his enslaved uh, situation in Maryland, whose name is Frederick Douglass. Uh, and he uh, is an imposing figure, broad-shouldered, not easy to move, and when the conductors come up to him and try to force him into the Jim Crow car, which is what they were already calling it, mm -hmm. uh, Douglas refuses to move. In his memoir, he spectacularly describes how he holds onto the seat and is so firm in his grip that he rips it off of its bolted, uh, off of the bolts in the floor. Now, you know, we don't have any, any video to check on Mr. Douglas, <laughs> but it's a good story. Um, similarly, though, there's another abolitionist. Douglas is working with the abolitionists, and they're thrilled to be riding the railroads because before before the railroads came along, they were riding on horseback to their night meetings in terrible weather often, and they like railroads. But they also like it because it gives them an issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a man named David Ruggles who's visiting from New York, and he is not so imposing. In fact, he's at the age of 33, he's going blind mm -hmm. uh, from cataract, early cataracts, and he is not going to fight with the conductor. So instead, he uh, goes into court. And he asserts in the New Bedford police court that he was assaulted by the conductor. He was bruised and his clothing torn as he was taken off the train. And that is the first case of somebody suing over separation on public transportation. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the things that I wanted to show in this book is, you know, the white men decide the case, they argue the case, but there are no cases without the resistors who bring the case. So a double narrative is going on in the book, the narrative of the lives of the people who are going to make the decision and the resistance movement that is occurring. Mm -hmm. One of those men later uh, moves to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. His name is William Howard Day. He is an abolitionist. He's a graduate of Oberlin College, one of the first of the people of color who graduate from Oberlin College, which is early into admitting people of color into the, uh, into the college. And he and his wife are riding on a steamboat uh, from Chatham, Ontario, where he's thinking of moving. That's the community of people of color who have, you know, mm -hmm. the Underground Railroad had a, had a destination, and often it was Chatham, Ontario. And he's coming back to uh, Toledo, Ohio, through Detroit, and, they, and, the, and the steamboat captain refuses to sell him an inside cabin on a night of bad weather. Mm -hmm. And he refuses to pay uh, for sitting outside. He and his wife uh, disembark, and they get a, a, a cab, essentially, and they go to their destination at great expense, and he brings a lawsuit in 1855. Mm -hmm. And the uh, Michigan Supreme Court rules in favor of the steamboat company, mm -hmm. saying that it is entirely reasonable for the uh, steamboat company to make rules about where to seat or uh, where their passengers can sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the same, these are not laws, these are company policies, right. and that's very important, because right. the law comes later on uh, in 1890. Uh, and uh, his lawsuit is cited as a precedent by the Supreme Court majority in 1896 in Plessy. And you might ask yourself, why would a case from 1858, that was when that ruling was made in Michigan, even be relevant in a case where you're citing the 14th Amendment, which is ratified after, after the, the Civil, Civil War. War right. So this is a case preceding the uh, amendment under which the case is being brought. But it shows you that the Supreme Court in 1896 was not accepting the idea that this was a 14th Amendment case. But, and there was also a case from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. There was uh, a case. After that, that the Plessy Court relied on for some of its reasoning. Yeah, there, a woman after the Civil War, a woman named Mary Miles, a teacher in Philadelphia, uh, refused to go to the uh, uh, colored-only car, as it was called then, mm -hmm. and she sued, 
Um, and it's a great story because she is represented by a, a guy named George Earle, a man of abolitionist stock. His father was an abolitionist, served in the Pennsylvania legislature. Mm -hmm. And they win at the lower court level. And then they get to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And I, I'm going to read you a little bit of what the majority said at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court here in, in uh, Harrisburg. Um, the, the, the decision was written by a Republican. Now, the Republicans are, are the party of anti-slavery at this time. Right. And so these would supposedly be people who are sympathetic to Mary Miles' lawsuit. Um, but Daniel Agnew uh, is the judge, and here's what he said. If political affiliations were any guide, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court tilted in Miles' direction. The five judges included two Democrats and three Republicans. They could have issued a narrow ruling citing the legislature's new law, the legislature had just banned separate cars, as a complicating factor. But Daniel Agnew, a Republican, chose instead to write a majority opinion that amounted to a treatise on the wisdom and legality of separation. It was extraordinary in its fervor. Agnew declared, quote, a right to separate, end quote, a first for the court. In Agnew's view, there was no shortage of good reasons. Preventing violence was one. If a Negro take his seat beside a white man or his wife or daughter, the law cannot repress the anger or conquer the aversion which some will feel. It is much wiser to avert the consequences of this repulsion of race by separation than to punish afterwards the breach of peace that it might have caused. And then he summoned God to his side. Agnew said the creator had ordained separation by making two such dissimilar races. But he said reassuringly, to assert separateness is not to declare inferiority in either. It is simply to say that by following the order of divine providence, human authority ought not to compel these widely separated races to intermix. Mm -hmm. That is the wisdom of the Pennsylvania yes. Supreme Court in 1867. Yes. And, and although uh, the, the Supreme Court in Plessy didn't invoke the divine, I think their reasoning on that point was somewhat similar, that if the, the black person who was being sent to the separate car felt inferior, that was really his, his problem. Justice Henry Billings Brown, the majority opinion writer, said that uh, there, there's no uh, suggestion that separation is an inferior badge of, a badge of inferiority, which was a, a phrase that had been invoked because of the 13th Amendment, right. which bans such uh, things. And, uh, he said, uh, it's only, well, you can read the... Well, yeah, I have the quote here. He said, uh, he called it a fallacy to assume that enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. Yeah. And as I went on to say, then he was asking people of color to say that their own eyes and ears were not telling them the truth. Right, right. Because they, they had seen the reality. Yeah. So as you met, read in the prologue, th this, apart from the story of this case, it's really the story of four very interesting individuals that were involved in it. Uh, uh, the two Supreme Court justices, Harlan and, and Brown. Harlan was the only dissenter uh, in the case. And, uh, and then the, law the lawyer who argued the case uh, for Plessy, Albion Tourget, and then Louis Mart Martinet, it's pronounced. Uh, from Louisiana, who headed the Citizens Committee that, that basically uh, organized this case. I mean, they, they worked with the railroad to put this case in a posture where it could be brought. So as you study these four individuals, and you really, you get to know them uh, as, as both as public figures and as people as, as you read your book, was there any one of them that you found most appealing or most interesting in your research? Well, I've been writing? interested to see how the reviewers have reacted to, mm -hmm. to that. Um, most people I'll, I'll give gravitate, you pick, but I want to hear you first. gravitate to Harlan. Okay. And I, I kind of agree with that because Harlan is the person who changes the most. He evolves the most. Right. He is pro-slavery before the war. He runs as a pro-slavery candidate for Congress. Mm -hmm. He comes from a slaveholding family uh, in Kentucky, uh, which is a border state, never in the, not in the Confederacy, but very much the battleground of the Civil War. And he renounces those views 10 years later when he runs for governor. Mm -hmm. And by the time that the civil rights cases come along in the 1880s, when he's on the Supreme Court in the 1890s, he is the ringing dissenter, the only dissenter most of the time. 
And so his transformation is remarkable. And most people have often asked me, do you think it's genuine? And I said, well, you know, it's pretty hard to sit in a room of nine people and be the only outsider to the views of those other eight people. Right. So yes, I think it was very definitely genuine. Um, Turget is the radical. He's the guy who's gonna to go to North Carolina after the Civil War to cement the revolution that slavery is ended, liberation has come. Um, he's kind of a serial embellisher. He, he loves to make up things to, for the cause and he doesn't see any problem with that. Uh, and as a lawyer, um, he never really practices before the Supreme Court and he's an accidental catch for this committee of New Orleanians who are bringing this case, but they're thrilled to have the most famous white advocate for civil rights in the country on their team. Right. And they're overwhelmed by that. And a lot of people have asked me, well, did Turget do a very good job? And I say, well, you know, he kind of thought that throwing more arguments at the court was better, probably not a great idea. Yeah, we were taught not to do that yeah. in law school. <laughs> and, and he actually articulates this in a letter. He doesn't just do it. Right. He says that that's as part of his strategy. Right. Um, Henry Billings Brown is kind of the most en enigmatic figure. I mean, if you were to predict who was going to end up on what side of this case, you'd probably predict that the guy who grew up in western Massachusetts in an abolitionist neck of the woods, surrounded by Republicans who were teaching him that anti-slavery was a good thing, mm -hmm. he would probably end up in the, on the dissenting side if there was going to be a partner for Harlan. Instead, he ends up writing the decision and cementing his legacy as the author of one of the worst decisions in American history. Yeah. Well, and he was sort of a careerist. I mean, his, his life was about getting to the next higher position, getting first getting a district court judge, well, he had a lower state court judgeship, then a federal district judgeship, and finally getting to the Supreme Court, so. Yeah, he, he loved being a judge, in part he wrote in his diary because it meant that he didn't have to work three months of the year. Yes. And, and he, he, went, he to wanted to go to Europe. Europe. Right. Yeah, he went to Europe a dozen times in the eight, 1870s and oh. 80s. And I write in the book that he ended up knowing more about London, Rome, and Paris than he knew about Charleston, Savannah, or New Orleans. Right, right. And I, I think he, he had very little contact with people of color, uh, and it showed in his view of the world, which was uh, not only a, you know, a fundamentally racist view, I mean, he thought that people of color were inferior, although he doesn't articulate it that way, but he also uh, just doesn't understand what it's like to live in the South, mm -hmm. uh, in, in a place where there are laws now, not, not company policies anymore. Starting in the 1880s, there have become these laws that mandate separation, which is a very different kind of, yeah. kind of situation. Well, I thought Torje was the most interesting character, primarily be, just because That's of the- That's a lawyer talking. Well, the, <laughs> the diversity of his career. I mean, he was, in addition to, uh, to his legal career, he was a journalist, he had a, a, a newsletter, a civil rights newsletter. He wrote a couple of best-selling novels. Uh, yeah, he is, he is a kind of, he, he, you know, if he doesn't write, they don't have any money to live on. So right. he's writing all the time. Yeah, and he's sort of living hand to mouth, right. Yeah, and he, he convinces the Chicago Inter-Ocean, which is a newspaper that went out of business in the 1920s, I think. I may be wrong about that date. But it, it, it existed for a good 40 years. And he was, he was a huge uh, subscription draw for them because unlike anybody else in that newspaper, the South, people of color in the South, were buying the Chicago Inner Ocean by mail just to read Albion Turgé. Right. And he was, uh, he called this column the bystander, which is ironic because he was anything but a bystander. Yes. And he, I, I could read to you, um, so I won't do this now, but he, he had this one column in which he denounced Southernism in such explicit and, and uh, and angry terms that uh, he got death threats as a result right. of, of what, he, what he wrote about the South and its essential character. And the idea that he would move to North Carolina, he lived in North Carolina for 14 years after the Civil War, it was kind of preposterous that he well, was he, from Ohio. You know, everybody know the, the term War. carpetbagger? You know, it's yeah, meant yeah. as a derogatory term. You, yes. know, you, you pick up stakes, you move down to the South, you're gonna make money off of the South. Well, Turgeet embraced carpet, you know, the term carpetbagger. He <laughs> said in a speech in 1872, I'm a carpetbagger, that's what I am, and I always will be. Yes. Uh, but he, he, he got down to North Carolina. He wasn't there to make money, really. He became a judge on the North Carolina court. He rewrote the civil code for North Carolina. Mm -hmm. He became the star of the 1867 North Carolina Constitutional Convention, mm -hmm. which was required for North Carolina to get, re, uh, to get back into the Union. You had to rewrite your constitution and get rid of slavery. And he, uh, 
later on ran for Congress, lost, and when he left in 1879, because his wife essentially refused to live there anymore and they mm -hmm. were worried about their safety, uh, one of the North Carolina newspapers called him the most hated man in North Carolina. <laughs> and in, in, in white supremacist circles, there was no doubt that that was the case. Yeah. And, and he ended his public career, I think, as a diplomat. He was, uh, he was in Europe, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he secured a job for himself uh, through President McKinley. Um, took a lot of work because he wasn't a popular guy by that point. As, a, uh, as the Consul General of Bordeaux, France. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of absented himself from the race uh, discussions, occasionally wrote letters to people, but he was exhausted by his, his uh, attempts to, to bring civil rights to everyone in America. And, right. and you know, he, he, he felt he had failed in Plessy. Yeah. And it, it, although the public didn't really care about Plessy that much because it was kind of an expected decision. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked about that yet. Right. Uh, he, he was... Uh, he thought he was going to have a victory. He realized halfway through it wasn't going to be a victory, and I think he was uh, uh, depressed by what happened. Yeah. Well, to pick up in your point, so the result of Plessy seems foreordained, given the composition of the court, the 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 sort of the feeling of the the time among those justices and and among the country at large. Is was there ever a chance that it could have come out differently? I don't think so. Um, not in 1896. I mean, if it was going to come out differently, it would have had to come out differently in, 1890, in 1883. With the civil rights with, cases. With this case that's now called the civil rights cases, although right. it's got five cases that were combined into one and it would have otherwise a name like Plessy versus Ferguson, but for shorthand it's called the civil rights cases. And it, it's the Supreme Court overturning the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which I, I need to explain First, that these three amendments that are passed after the, the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, we talked about the 13th, which you know, abolishes slavery, the 14th is equal protection under the law, and the 15th is voting rights for black men. Mm -hmm. These are a revolution. I mean, anybody who talks about the, the original Constitution, I don't know what Constitution they're talking about, because that, that 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment essentially throw out the slavery idea that is embedded in the, in the 1879 Constitution. So, uh, you have a whole new set of laws, and if you, for those of you who want to study the Constitution, look at the last two provisions of the 14th and 15th Amendment and ask yourself, why did the amendments grant Congress the power to enact legislation to enforce them? Why would Congress need to give itself power to do what it's already allowed to do in the Constitution? And the answer is, is because they were making a point. We're not just gonna do these amendments, we're gonna give ourselves the power to enforce them. And the radical Republicans who are in charge of Congress in 1865 to 1875 are the most important politicians in the country, far more important than the president. Mm -hmm. The president is basically weak, the Andrew, Congress is in charge. Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson first, you know, impeached and then right. not convicted. But, you know, it's not that the president isn't important. He's important, Grant and Hayes. Mm -hmm. But these, these pieces of legislation are ones that the president isn't, isn't pushing, Congress is pushing. Mm -hmm. And so the 1875 Civil Rights Act is a public accommodations act. No more separation, uh, equal accommodations in hotels and theaters and, and on railroad trains and steamboats. And the Supreme Court says that it's unconstitutional. Right. Uh, that it goes too far because the 14th Amendment, they say, is only applies to states enacting legislation to restrict rights, mm -hmm. not to individuals, not to companies, not to corporations. Here we have the corporation issue yeah. coming up. That's part of what, what's going on in that period. Right, and so without some dramatic change in the Supreme Court between the time of that decision and Plessy, it was, I mean, there'd be no reason for the court to look at its precedent recent precedent and say, oh, we're going to... Yeah, Harlan, Harlan dissents in the civil rights case. He's only been on the court... And again, the only dissenter. The only dissenter. He's only been on the court for six years, and it takes him forever to write this dissent. He's so uh, worried about it because he knows it's going to get scrutinized. He's, the only, he's going to be the only dissenter. In fact, it's not just scrutinized. It is published in its entirety in newspapers throughout the country, mm -hmm. taking up a full newspaper page. The, yeah. the, the majority opinion isn't published, right. just, the, just the dissent. Yeah. And he's very proud of this decision. If you go to the Harlan Papers, there's a scrapbook 
of every letter he received after, after the civil rights uh, after the civil rights cases decision, and the, and uh, one of them is Frederick Douglass praising him for mm -hmm. taking this this bold stand. But his uh, is a fascinating story, which I don't know how much of is true. His wife, who writes a, a memoir after he dies, and you know she's burnishing his reputation. She says that she is responsible for. Uh, ending his writer's block hmm. on the civil rights case's dissent. He, he, she, so the story goes, after he's appointed to the court in 1877, he goes to the supply office, essentially. The U.S. Marshal sees him admiring an inkstand and, says to, and he says to the Marshal, you know, I like that inkstand. And the Marshal says, do you know whose that was? And the, and the Marshal says, it was... Chief Justice Taney's inkstand. Now, Chief Justice Taney was the author of the other worst case in American history, the Dred Scott decision, which said that people of color could never be citizens whether they were free or enslaved. Right. That was written in 1857 and right. helped cause the Civil War. By the way, I know you're going to Dickinson College tomorrow? He's, yes. He's a graduate of Dickinson. Right, I know that. <laughs> so he, he wants this yeah. inkstand because he thinks of it as a piece of Americana. Yeah. He brings it home. He goes to a party that night with his wife. He meets a descendant of Tawny, a woman, who says, I would love to have that inkstand. And he, being this gracious Kentucky ge gentleman that he is, mm -hmm. says, I will give you this inkstand. Next day, he goes to find the inkstand to give to the woman, and he asks his wife, well, where is it? She has, unbeknownst to him, hidden the inkstand because she thinks he will take better care of it than Tawny's descendant. Well, I don't know what she thought she was going to do. Like, when is this going to... Because she says, I never lie to my husband. And six years later, when he's in the middle of this writer's block, she unearths... She, you know, she goes down and finds the inkstand where she had left it. She puts it on his desk and tells him, I think I put something on your desk that will help you with your descent. <laughs> and she claims that using the inkstand that was before... And a pro-slavery decision used to write the pro-slavery decision now is going to be used to write this pro-civil rights decision. That was the thing that, as she put it, made his pen fly. <laughs> Great story. Yeah. Nobody around to, to dispute it. A good story. So um, let me ask you one more question before we open the floor to uh, questions from the audience. Um, so as I think most people know, the Plessy case was effectively overruled by Brown and versus Board of Education in 1954. Um, what's the relevance of Plessy today? It's obviously happily not legal precedent anymore, but, but it does have an important place in American history, and how is it relevant to our history? Well, our you know, first today? I would say, you know, how many of you know who Plessy was? Anybody? Tell me who you think he is. Go ahead. And so, and what was Plessy, you know, it's the case called Plessy versus Ferguson, what was the dispute? What was going on there? Anybody know? I didn't know these answers to these questions either, so no embarrassment here. And the last question I'll ask you, how many of the seven justices who ruled in favor of racial separation were from the North and how many from the South, given what we think about the South? Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's the answers to the questions. Homer Plessy was a mixed-race man of color from the Creole neighborhood of, of New Orleans who was a volunteer to get arrested in what was an arranged arrest to make sure that this case got to the Supreme Court. So in a recent book by uh, one eminent historian, he said that Plessy sued the railroad. That's not true. He got arrested and the case is called Plessy versus Ferguson because he was appealing the ruling of, Ples of Ferguson that the Louisiana law requiring separation was constitutional. That's what is going on at the Supreme Court. He's appealing that ruling that this law is constitutional. Um, it is said in the brief that he was one-eighth black. It is true that he was closer to white in terms of percentage, a terrible thing to talk about, but closer to white than black. But he was probably about a quarter, my, my research shows, I think I'm right. They didn't care how much the percentage was in the brief because they just needed him to be as white as possible because one of their arguments was, if you can't tell the race of somebody when you're walking down the middle of a railroad car, how the hell is the conductor supposed to enforce this law? That was one of their arguments. 
The number of justices, six northerners, one southerner among the seven. This was a northern-dominated court. So you have this agreement that racial separation is not only unconstitutional, it's not unconstitutional, but most people think that they said that the 14th Amendment allowed this. That's not the case. This case was decided by a much narrower and more interesting decision, which was that Louisiana, under its police powers, had the right to enact legislation to keep law and order, to keep peace. And that's all it was about, was the state right to enact such legislation. So it's much more a case in constitutional terms under the 10th Amendment, which nobody here will know what that is. And the 10th Amendment says every right not given to Congress is reserved to the states. And so this was reserved to the states. The Supreme Court in 1954 says, well, we don't think that the court was kind of right in, in Plessy. We're not going to tell you exactly why, because we don't really want to make our brethren look bad. But we're going to overturn that, and we're going to say that separate is inherently unequal and can never be equal. And the, the relevance, I think, is in addition to the statistics that I think we can look at that show that there's still this imbalance, this, this uh, huge gap between uh, white and, and our white and black citizens is that it's, it's an important thing that the Supreme Court said it was wrong. The Supreme Court can today say it's wrong. And that's both good and bad, right? What if it said that, well, it was wrong when it said that same-sex marriage is allowed? What if it said, well, no, we, we were wrong to say that affirmative action is good or bad? You know, there's, it's, but, I think it's, it, it, to me, it's a hopeful thing when a government institution can look back at itself and say, well, that wasn't the way we should have decided that. Now, they don't, they don't really say that in, in Brown. They don't, but they do say that, um, that they, do, they do cite Plessy as being the case that they're overturning. And what's interesting about that is Plessy wasn't regarded as a landmark case in 1896. Mm -hmm. It wasn't regarded as a landmark case until about 1940, yeah. when, the case had when the court had repeatedly cited it in other cases, which is why I read that passage yeah. about how you can't view Supreme Court cases in isolation. So does anybody here know who uh, Dr. Carter Woodson is? He was the founding editor, PhD, of the Journal of Negro History, the first such journal in the country in 1915. In 1921, Carter Woodson wrote an essay about all of the Supreme Court rulings that touched on the 14th Amendment and civil rights. He called it the essay 50 Years of, of uh, Negro, Rulings About Negro Citizenship. Mm -hmm. Now you would think in 1921, if Plessy was regarded as a landmark, that he would spend considerable time in his 53-page essay talking about Plessy. Two pages. Mm -hmm. How many on the civil rights cases of 1883? 12. Because he understood correctly, that's where it started. That's where the narrow, narrowing of the interpretation of the 14th Amendment occurred. And that everything that happened after that was a result of that original ruling. And there were some in the 1870s as well. There was a, there was a case in 1879 involving a Louisiana uh, constitutional provision, the, the state constitution, where they should have ruled that, that they should have upheld the constitutional amendment, which said there were equal accommodations, and mm -hmm. instead they struck it down. And, and of course, Plessy grew far beyond accommodations on right. streetcars to every kind of public accommodation over the next 50 or 60 years until it was overruled. It was applied in hotels and schools and every kind and, of and public And you know, I, I just came back from visiting the uh, civil rights exhibits and museums in Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And any of you who are interested in that, I recommend that you go there if you've never seen. And, and the, the way in which the Southern senators, the segregationists, as they called themselves, with pride, held on to Plessy, in effect, held yeah. on to segregation. And they were defiant, as you know. When Brown occurred, the schools did not immediately desegregate. We had, we had governors standing in doorways saying, you know, you you're going to have to... You had massive resistance. You had massive resistance. Right. And the federal that government has no business being in this, has right. no business telling us what to do with our schools. Right. And I think that argument, what is the federal government's powers? And what, 
of the states' powers goes on to this day. Yeah, interesting. And of course, the span of t in the span of time between these two cases, it was a year after Brown that John Harlan's grandson, also named John Harlan, became a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I'm not sure that John Harlan, the grandfather, would have agreed on politics very much with no, John Harlan, the grandson. No, he was grandson. a pretty conservative Republican. He was a much more conservative justice. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we'll stop. I have a lot more questions, but I want to... You'll, you'll get a chance, I'm sure. <laughs> if you have a question, just uh, you can raise your hand, and I'll come around with the mic. Yes. Do you have any uh, insight into what motivated uh, Justice Harlan in his, uh, in his situation? I have some. I mean, it's a very interesting question. How does a man who grows up in a slavery, in a slaveholding house, runs for Congress as a pro-slavery candidate, how does he change? And it, it's a gradual thing, but even as late as 1865 and 66, Harlan raises a Union regiment. He fights to preserve the Union, but states in a letter to the Louisville newspaper that if it becomes a war to end slavery, he will not be able to fight for the Union anymore. That's his view in 1861. After the war, in 1865, as a Kentucky's Attorney General, he opposes those three civil rights amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th, and says that it's Kentucky's job to end slavery, not the 13th Amendment. It's Kentucky's job to provide equal rights, not the federal government. This is his view. Six years later, running for governor, he renounces most of those views and says he was wrong. So what happened between 1865, 66, and 1871? And the answer is, well, it's really about politics. I don't mean politics, meaning he he's doesn't believe in what he's saying. It's that in order to make it in politics in Kentucky, he has two choices. He can join the Democrats, the party of the Confederacy in Kentucky, filled with ex Confederate officers, people who are bitter because most of them are not, not allowed to vote because of what they had done during the Civil War. That, that amnesty comes later on. And he can't stand them. He tries for about a year and he can't work with them and so he ends up joining the Republican Party. Well, joining the Republican Party in Kentucky is, is certain defeat. You're never gonna win anything. They're the weaker party. He loses twice for governor. And so he turns his attention to Washington, because that's where he sees his career having to, to go. And his law partner in 1870 is a man named Benjamin Bristow. And I think it's his relationship with Bristow that largely changes who he is. Bristow had been the US attorney using the Anti-Ku Klux Klan Act of 1866 and 67 to prosecute people who were committing acts of violence, white people against people of color, and I think it's Bristow who convinces Harlan, one, slavery is a bad idea, immoral, and two, your, your future is with the Republicans and it, it will be a good future. And in order to be a Republican, you have to actually be a Republican. You can't, you can't say I'm sort of half a Republican. And this becomes an issue in 1877 when he's nominated to the court. He writes a 19-page handwritten letter, an extraordinary letter that you can read in the National Archives, that's what it, where I read it, defending himself and saying that his conversion is genuine. Um, and would he, would he have been confirmed by the Senate had he not written that letter? Probably. I mean, he, he didn't have a lot of opposition. But the Republicans of the North were, were frustrated with Hayes, the president, for appointing Harlan because they said, this guy is the best you can do? A guy who came a, became a Republican in 1868 and only been a Republican for nine years? That's who you want to put on the Supreme Court? And that's the reason Harlan had to write his letter, is because he could see that there was possible opposition building and he wanted to forestall it before he got there. So I think it's that combination of, I need a career in politics. If I'm going to have one, I need to be a Republican. and Therefore, I've got to be a Republican wholeheartedly. And I think he really did examine his, his views. Um, he was a famous constitutionalist. You know, he, he taught the Constitution uh, at night school, essentially, in Washington, D.C., for extra income. Um, but his, his uh, lectures became collected and published. Um, mm -hmm. He also had very strong views about immigration. He was anti-immigration and had some fairly racist views, especially about the Chinese that we can't ignore 
But you know, people are not perfect human beings. Uh, they, uh, they evolve. Right. Any other questions? Come on, you guys, you must have yeah. questions. You, you young people over here, you're thinking about questions all the time. Come on. Yes, there's one back there. Can you, can you expand on something you said a minute ago? You mentioned the Anti-Ku Klux Klan Act. What year was that, and can you explain what that is? Yes. Um, so that's one of the reverberations, I would also say, is when I, when I saw what was going on in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, I wrote a note to my editor who was, you know, we, we were still working on the book, and I said, this is, the re this is the reverberations of white supremacy. So after the Civil War, white supremacy, I mean, this is different than white superiority, which predated the Civil War, but white supremacy as a movement comes out of the anger and bitterness of losing the war, losing economic power, losing political power. People of color are being elected to Congress during Recon Reconstruction. I don't know how many of you have watched or, or sampled the series on Reconstruction that has now just appeared on PBS. Uh, you know, fabulous look at, at that period, which I also hope my book is. But the, the Ku Klux Klan is born in Tennessee in 1867. The, the, the founder, one of the founders was a famous, Kentucky, a, a famous Confederate general named Nathan Bedford Forrest. And it spreads quickly to Kentucky, to North Carolina, but there's also parallel white supremacist groups calling themselves just merely regulators. They're regulating Southern society. And Congress passes an act, and there's another one in 1870, which gives the federal government the power to enforce the laws that prohibit taking action against the people of color. And that is an, a view that is not widely held at the time that the federal government has any business interfering what, it, what is essentially a local crime. Murder, education, these are local matter. Marriage, local matter, all these things. And, and so the idea that the federal government belongs in this arena, Benjamin Bristow, as the US attorney for Kentucky, is having a hard time figuring out which cases he should prosecute. One of the things that the law allowed him to do is to take a case that was not being acted on in state court, wrest it away from the state authorities, and prosecute it in federal court. Well, as you can imagine, this group of uh, people who are white in, in these states who have lost the Civil War now see these, these uh, federales coming in to wrest away from state court these, these cases. They're, it causes a lot of rancor. And so, in, in, in some ways, it helps the Ku Klux Klan. It builds their ranks. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. Any other More questions? questions? Let's go here, and then we'll go back, back here. So, you, Plessy gets expanded, you know, many times, many court things, and my focus here in Pennsylvania has been on basic and special education funding, and we have one of the most racist distributions still in America today. With all your work on this, of what in Plessy still is in effect in America right now, and, and maybe some thoughts on how that decision hasn't been fully overturned, since in Pennsylvania our school funding is still very discriminatory. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know that I could connect it to Plessy other than by its, the fact that in history we once had a ruling that said that racial separation was, was, was fine and that separate could be equal. Certainly in one of the Harlan's fears, he, he predicted pretty much what was going to happen. He didn't get to separate water fountains, but he got to separate justice systems. And I think he would say that, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the Voting Rights Act, which the first one was passed in 1965, yeah. uh, but there was a, you know, the, the, the poll tax was, when was the poll tax outlawed? I think it was around that time. Uh, so there's a, you know, most people don't know that there's an amendment to the Constitution that specifically says the poll tax is unconstitutional, mm -hmm. is illegal. Uh, but the, all of these 
these uh, factors that have gone into these disparities, you're working in special education. I, I just was looking at a book about a, um, the prosecution of somebody who was probably, should have been declared not guilty by reason of insanity. And, and the book, the author of the book is arguing from her inside the court perspective, like you have an inside the school system perspective, that it's, it's applied discriminatorily, that, that a person of color can never win on an insanity defense and that white people have. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard that argued before, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, look at the rates of mass, incarcera mass incarceration problem. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that we have a, uh, I'm glad that the Equal Justice Initiative, which is behind the, the lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, Brian Stevenson, if you know his book, Just Mercy, uh, you know, this, is, this is the issue that they're focused on. That's what the museum down there is really, it asks you to consider whether the mass incarceration issue today is an outgrowth of the past, and I think it's a pretty good argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you want to read a good book on that, the subject of bias that you alluded to, there's a, uh, a new book called Biased by Jennifer Eberhardt, who's a social psychologist who's who studied all these issues of implicit bias. Uh, she talks about the crim criminal justice system, that uh, the, the, the uh, depth of skin color, darker right. black defendants get the death penalty more in death penalty cases than lighter skinned. That's interesting. Well, and, and so why did, why did the Plessy lawyers, why did Albion Turget want Homer Plessy, and before him, there was a case before him that we haven't talked about, Daniel Day Dune. Mm -hmm. Why did they want someone who looked nearly white? Well, I said it was partly because you could argue that the law wasn't going to be enforced. But he also had this, this somewhat wacky argument that race is, your, is, is part of your reputation. And if you're living in 1890s America, would you rather be white or black? Well, the answer to that, unless you're very proud of your heritage, is kind of obvious. It would be easier for me if I were white. So he wants the court to rule that there's no, it's not fair, it's against due process for a conductor to take away Homer Plessy's ability to pass for white by declaring him, now they didn't declare him anything, it was an arranged arrest, right? Plessy declares to them that he's, he's a person of color so that he can get the case started. Mm -hmm. But they want to declare that if you're gonna put him in the, in the, in the car that is meant for, for black passengers only, then you're taking away his ability to pass for white without due process. Now, think about that. Let's say the court had bought that argument. We'd still have separation, right? We would have a car with white and mixed race passengers, and the people who could not pass for white are going to be in a separate car. It's a terrible argument. But if you're a lawyer and you want to win, it seems like maybe a winning argument. And so he tries that too. The court ignores that argument, thank God. Um, and decides it on other grounds. I, I had lots of great arguments that seemed good in my office, but when I walked out the door, they didn't look so good. Yeah. Okay. You don't want an argument that's going to lead to, you know. Right. An absurd result. Right. Since we have clearly exhausted the academic questions, uh, allow me to uh, pose a more political question. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on the Roberts court apparently trying to undermine Brown uh, and reinstitute separate. Well, you're going to have to say more because I don't think I see them reinstituting separate. So tell us what you mean by that. Well, uh, certainly they have, certainly they, certainly they have uh, or uh, the, the Roberts himself has said that, well, we just shouldn't look at race and we should get rid of all kinds of affirmative action and all sorts of things like yeah. that. It seems to me that the, uh, the implicit message there is that, yeah, okay, separate is okay. Well, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I, what I will say is, is that I've always been fascinated by the fact that the Supreme Court, there are justices throughout the last century and a half that seem bothered by this idea of in, it wasn't called affirmative action, obviously, in 1870, uh, 1870s, but Joseph Bradley, who was a justice back then, said in one of the early civil rights cases, uh, we have to get past 
allowing the person of color to be a special favorite of the law, which is an echo of Sandra Day O'Connor saying that I hope 25 years from now yeah. we can get rid of affirmative action. She said that in, in an earlier ruling. Yeah. Well, Harlan was, was incensed by the idea that he would call people of color as the special favorites of the law. He said, in what, in what law have they ever been special favorites? They were just recently enslaved. That's what his dissent was in that case. He, yeah. was, he was outraged by that. So it seems, though, that there's always going to be justices who don't like this idea. The, Harvey would know this better than I would, but the, in the law, the, the idea is, is that if the law is neutral on the question of color, then it cannot be called discriminatory mm -hmm. in, to one race or another. Right. So Plessy, the Plessy statute but it, said- but it, could, it could be uh, discriminatory as applied. It's right. facially neutral, but- Facially neutral, right. but- So for example, in Plessy's case, the law said that uh, the railroads must provide, or shall provide, equal but separate accommodations for its white and colored passengers. That law, therefore, is racially neutral, right? It may not be equal. And, and one of the things that Turgeet has been criticized by lawyers who have come after him, and legal scholars and constitutional scholars, is why didn't you attack the equal part of it? Why didn't you point out that the Railroad cars were not equal, that the, 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 the passengers who were people of color were sitting in a worse car. They didn't want to argue the case on that basis. They thought that was a losing argument. They wanted to argue it on the basis of, of there should be no separation at all. Not that, you know, because they didn't want to give the court an opportunity to say, well, get those cars up to standard. That was not what they wanted. And, and I think he was probably right in yeah. that era that that would be the way that they would, would rule. They would say, well, as long as you make them equal, then they can continue to be, be separate. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that courts always have a problem with anything that smacks of favoritism. That's what I've seen through my research. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I don't give you my opinions too much because my journalist, the journalist in me, I still kind of believe in facts. Um, I still believe that there's not fake news, there's real news. Yes. Um, so I, I kind of like to be on the sidelines being the analyst and not the opinion person. Yeah. Okay. If we don't have any more questions from the audience. No, there's a guy up in the we've balcony. Got, got one up there. All right, I got you. Oh, he's going to run up there. Good. This is like, uh, this is the Phil Donahue portion. <laughs> Homer Plessy, what happened to him after the ruling? How did he become affiliated with those lawyers from the beginning? And what was his, how did he earn money? What was his job? Was Good questions. So um, the first volunteer that I referred to, da Daniel Daydoon, was the son of one of the committee members. Now, who was this committee? This committee of New Orleanians was mostly this mixed-race, French-speaking group that lived in neighborhoods like Treme and the Marigny. If you've ever been in New Orleans or you've seen the show on, on HBO, Treme. Um, and, and they are the descendants of, when, when the United States bought Louisiana and the rest of the Louisiana Purchase, they sent a provisional governor to, to uh, Louisiana in 1803, a guy named William Claiborne, and he arrived to find that there were 6,000 free people of color. 6,000 in New Orleans, unlike any other city in the South. And he wrote letters back to Jefferson, the president, and Madison, the secretary of state. And he basically said, hey, guys, I got a problem down here. I got these 6,000 free people of color, and they have a militia. The French and the Spanish allowed them to have a militia, and they have weapons. What would you like me to do? <laughs> it took a month for his letter to get to Washington. It took a month for the reply to came, come back. And he was disappointed to find that Madison said, you're on your own, buddy. <laughs> so... This group was promised in the Treaty of 1803 certain rights that they never received. Now, they were, they were not without rights. They could own property, they couldn't vote, but you know, there, was, there was a mixture of rights. I'm not gonna go through them all. But I call them a sandwich layer in between the white establishment and the enslaved population before the Civil War. Well, by 1860, and, and then into the 1890s, they've been asking for their rights at critical moments many times. 
And by 1890, when this law comes along, they're really unhappy. The leader of this group, more or less, is this guy named Louis Martinet. Martinet is somebody who, as a young man, had been a delegate to the 1883 Convention of Colored Men that Frederick Douglass had called in Louisville, Kentucky. And Douglass gives this speech, which you can read in anthologies. It's actually not the speech he delivered. It's just the speech he wrote. The speech he delivered, you have to go to newspapers to find, because he gave them the prepared text. But he, he ad-libbed some things. And he is saying, we cannot wait. We are always asked to wait. I'm tired of waiting. We have to act. We are being lynched. We are being uh, forced. Uh, there's a color line that's been drawn. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a famous speech. Echoes of Martin Luther King's words appear in Douglass's speech. And Martinet is inspired by this. And so when he and the other committee members bring uh, the, their strategy and, and their, uh, they develop their strategy, they ask Douglass, who is the most famous black man in America, for his imprimatur, and Douglas won't give it to them. And, and Martinet is furious about this. Um, and he, he doesn't like Mr. Douglas in the letters, at least, that he's writing to Terje that survive. We don't have Douglas's reasons for not in, endorsing. I think it's because, one, he looks at this mixed-race group, which want to be white, and he says, you know, you're not my constituency. <laughs> and secondly, who wants to be on the side of a losing case? He kind of sees where the court has gone, where it's been, and he doesn't want to do that. So Plessy is somebody who, by the 18, late 1880s, he's involved with these men who on various committees in New Orleans. He's, he's involved in politics. He's a young man. He's 22, 23 years old. He's a shoemaker initially. He goes on to do some other professions. But after the case, he kind of retires to a very quiet life. He's a volunteer. He, in some ways, he's a walk-on. Uh, and and he's, he's not important other than as a demographic, almost, except that he's brave. I mean, he doesn't know what's going to happen when he walks onto that train. Maybe one of the crew members doesn't get the word, and he ends up getting beat up. I mean, it's possible. It didn't happen, uh, fortunately. But he's immortalized for his brave single act. Uh, and what I think is fascinating, I'll read you this one uh, part. Um, so... I also want to tell you in the book, like, what happens to Homer Plessy? So here's what I write. On June 18, 1900, so we're talking about four, four years later, yeah. census enumerator John E. Duffs walked the streets of New Orleans' 7th Ward, knocking on the doors of more than 30 households, collecting the bits of information he needed for the 28 boxes on his questionnaire. He had instructions for each entry, including box five, color or race, the directions were simple enough. Quote, write W for white, B for black, Negro or Negro ancestry, CH for Chinese, JP for Japanese, IN for Indian, as the case may be, end quote. No need for any of those last three designations on today's visits. As for the first two, they pose a challenge for Mr. Duff's. He no longer had the option of MU for mulatto, a category in previous censuses, and well used in New Orleans' French-speaking neighborhoods. Like a train conductor surveying the cars on the, East on the East Louisiana Railroad, the enumerator had only two choices for the multi-hued families on his route, white, black, not FC for French Creole or MI for mixed or O for other, white, black. So he goes to the house of Homer Plessy, now what happens is, is in the 1900 census, he was B for black. In the 1910 census, he's B for black. In the 1920 census, he's W for white. Mm. Interesting. And as I write, Albion Tourget would have been delighted to see that the census was just as confused as anybody else in New Orleans. <laughs> okay. We're just about out of time, so right. any last uh, questions? One more question? Or... Please, maybe, don't you want to be Maybe Harvey's got one? I don't yeah. know. Um, well, I want to ask sort of a, a general question, and that is, uh, has, has your work as a historian, which I, you're not a professional historian, I know, but you are a historian after writing this book, ha has that given you any thoughts about the way uh, history is uh, studied or, or not studied or taught in the United States and how it enters into our current political discussions? Well, I'm a storyteller. 
And so I favor telling stories, and I think if young people would learn history as stories and less as, you know, the, the old saw that I can't learn all those dates and I can't learn all those names. I mean, that's not the way we should teach history. Right. We should teach them as ideas. And, but I, one thing I've noticed in the histories that I've read is frequently, I think historians pursue without knowing it, what I call the seed theory of history. John Harlan is the dissenter in Plessy. He writes this dissent that he is now wi uh, widely celebrated for. What are the seeds of John Harlan's view of, you, know, you sort of asked that question, what's the seeds of his view mm -hmm. on this? So in, in, uh, some historians have gone back and they find things in, in Harlan's childhood and they say, here, here's, why, here's the man who we're going to see, here's the child becoming the man. I reject that theory. I think, it's, I think it's nonsense. We know the outcomes, so yeah, you can go back and try to look for the seeds. I favor what I call the evolutionary view of history. John Harlan changes, and in order to pursue the seed view of history, you have to diminish his pro-slavery views. I've seen histories that have diminished it. One actually even said, oh, Harlan was just being politically expedient in 1857, 59. He couldn't, got him, he couldn't have gotten elected to Congress if he weren't pro-slavery. Mm -hmm. Excuse me? You, you want to tell me that he's pretending to be pro-slavery in, in Kentucky? It's not a pretense, it's who he was. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather embrace that and show you how he changed. That's an amazing story. I'm, a, I'm supposed to feel good about John Harlan if he's pretending to be pro-slavery? <laughs> that doesn't strike me as being a, an admirable quality. Right. So instead, I, I would like to tell the story of how he really changed. And so I, I I try to look at evolution as my way of interpreting people's lives. Um, there's a famous story which I'll tell very briefly about Lincoln's watch. Do you know about Lincoln's watch? So there's a watchmaker in 1861 who repairs Lincoln's watch and he writes an inscription on the inside of that watch. Historians for years have wanted to find this watch because in 1906, the watchmaker being interviewed by the New York Times tells you what he wrote on the inside of the watch. He said, I wrote that war has begun, slavery is done, thank God we have a president. Hmm. That's what he wrote, all those words on the inside of that watch. <laughs> well, in I think 2005 or so, the Smithsonian has one of Lincoln's pocket watches. And a lawyer, a genealogist, convinces them to open it up to see whether it's that watch. And they open it up, and sure enough, it is the watch with the inscriptions. Mm. And what it says is, Sumter bombed, Sumter attacked or something, um, no, men no mention of slavery, mm -hmm. and thank God we have a government. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> does the watchmaker lie in 1906 when yeah. he said what he said? No, he didn't lie. Yeah. He had lived for 40 more years, is yeah. my interpretation. And it had become a war about slavery. Right. It was, Lincoln was a great man, but he hadn't written that. He had written exactly what a journalist would write in 1861. Something happened, mm -hmm. and we have a government. Mm -hmm. And what else did he write? He put his name because he wanted a byline. <laughs> <laughs> Can we give a round of applause okay. for Stephen Harvey? Okay. Thank you. I would be, I would be remiss.